Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, Tuesday morning the, 11th the 11th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Water charges are to be reintroduced next year or as we discussed yesterday, some people will receive bills for the water they use next year if an Irish water proposal is accepted. Under the proposal, you could be charged up to €250 Euro a year if you use more water than is reasonable and a similar amount for wastewater services. That's a, a bill from Irish Water for two for €500, Euro, €250 Euro plus €250, Euro, a total of €500. Euro. Despite some surprise over this, this is exactly what Fianna Fáil agreed with Fine Gael to take the heat out of the issue. And it's also in line with the Oireachtas Committee on the Future Funding of Domestic Water Services. Paul Murphy is Solidarity TD for Dublin South West. Indeed, he was a member of that committee and he joins us now. A very good morning to you. So I'm sure you're not at all surprised by this move by our Irish Water to have people pay. Good morning, Michael. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not. Um, precisely as you say, this is part of the, the deal between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, which we, we opposed and warned that it was a, a Trojan horse to try to bring water charges back in by the back door. Um, they'll start off for excessive usage and then they will, if they get away with it, reduce the amount that counts as excessive over time, which they can do with no reference back to the doll. The government can simply do it themselves. Um, so this is, this is basically in line with what was planned. W- one thing that's different is that this, was, this process was meant to be happening at the start of this year and instead it was put off until next year. I think it's pretty obvious that that was because of the fear of this impacting on the local and European elections that we've just had. Um, I think that's a reason to question whether they will go ahead with this next year because they face more elections probably early next year in terms of a general election. And I think they have to be aware, you know, the scale of the mass opposition Mm. defeated the last water charges, the political price that the Labour Party paid in particular for like tying themselves to that policy. I think they need to consider all of that when they think about are they really going to go ahead with this with this um, imposition. Yeah, but the years are passing by and people are forgetting uh, how they felt uh, about water charges or the extent to which they might have had to pay. Now it seems water is as free as it always was and under this proposal, few will have to pay. 
Well, under this proposal, somewhere between 5 and 6 or 10%, depending on which estimates you look at, would have to pay when it starts. Um, but that's, that's the start. That's precisely the idea of like a thin edge of a wedge. And even within mm. that, um, in particular, what we have tried to warn is that four-person households would very easily enter into that category without having a leak or without you know, engaging in really excessive use of, of water. If a four-person household was to use on average just 20% more each than the average per person, well, then they would also be facing uh, charges. Um, so I wouldn't underestimate, and I think the government would be making a big mistake if they underestimated the level of opposition that this will, will meet, because people will understand this is about recommodification of uh, water, where that leads to in terms of what is a fundamentally regressive uh, charge, a mm. fundamentally un- unjust, unequal uh, charge, which hits lower income families much harder than higher income uh, families. I mean, 500 euro is about 4% of the disposable income of the bottom 10% of the population in terms of, of income. Okay, but, but this proposal is in line This proposal is in line with your own principles, isn't it? I mean, you've argued that people who use water excessively should be charged for the excessive usage. No, 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 I definitely haven't. We've argued against that um, precisely because we felt that any charging, any charging for water would result in then they'll reduce that, uh, what counts as excessive over time. Again, they, have, they can do that without any reference back to the law, but the government can mm. do it with a stroke of a pen. They can have the allowance uh, tomorrow, they can have it again after that, that it will lead back to a full charging regime if they get away so with it. So you don't believe that there should be a charge or a fine or some penalty for using an excessive amount of water? believe there should be a charge for using an excessive amount of water because that is all about the recommodification of, of water. I mean, something important to, to note here about how difficult it is going to be for Irish water to get this through is the fact that four in ten households do not have water meters. I don't have a water meter. Almost nobody in Tala, where I live, has a water meter. Mm, but they're talking um, about bringing in these district meters. Uh, they'll see that there's a problem somewhere in the district and then they'll go in and try and pinpoint it. They are, and it's quite ironic because this is something that in the past we advocated, that we said you don't need to have individual meters to find leaks and to go and fix them, and that's true. And you can use district meters to find leaks. But the idea of using district meters for charging, like, or seeing if 40% of the population are eligible or are facing or liable to face charges, that is not credible at all. That's an utterly unworkable scheme. And if, if this was about you know, conservation of water and stopping water leaks, well, then they would fix the leaks. That's, that's what needs to happen instead of... But they will fix the leaks. I mean, that's what they're saying, isn't it? They'll say that they'll fix the leaks. If the problem is that you're using an awful lot of water because of a, a leak, there's a, a first fix remedy. But, but let's just do that. <laughs> let's not have a, an expensive charging regime um, having to go and check the meters. But you won't be charged to, if it's because of a leak. Uh, well, no, you, you can be charged even if it's because of a leak. And if you use your first fix free and then after that, then it's going to be on, on you. Mm. Um, but 
my point about it being expensive charging regime is it, it's an expensive thing to administer to have a billing process and so on just go and find the leaks mm. and go and fix the leaks so should there be an incentive then if there shouldn't be a sanction or a fine or a bill for people who use too much water or an excessive amount of water and I suppose people's definition of what is excessive will differ but if uh, there shouldn't be any penalty for using too much water should there be an incentive to use a reasonable amount of water well I think and it's one of the things that the Oireachtas Committee recommended that I agreed with is the idea of a rolling out of an extensive education programme about the need for conservation, about the idea of a scheme of grants for retrofitting, Mm. for water conservation, so um, grey water harvesting, Mm. uh, etc. And they're the kind of things that have an impact really on conservation. I mean, we know from the Expert Water Commission report that people in Ireland use a fair bit less water than people in Britain. Yeah, but not all people do. I I, I mean, uh, you'll hear people tell you that they're watching somebody use a a power hose to wash clean buses all day, every day, and to do that during the middle of a hose pipe ban. Uh, Not all people are reasonable or uh, responsible, and some people are wasteful. So what do you do about those people if they're not listening? The evidence isn't there that Irish people are, are wasteful in terms Some of, of water. Um, but, but, I mean, you, you'll hear the figure that 1% of domestic water users use 25% of domestic water. Okay, so there you have a huge, let's say, waste or excessive use of, of water. But those cases are going to be, all of them, I would say, are going to be cases of leaks. That's where you have huge uses of, of domestic water, it's a leak. And the answer is to go and find the leaks and to go and fix them. And you do not need a charging regime to have that. What you need a charging regime for is if you're interested then in afterwards expanding it out to be a charge on everybody, and that will drive towards the process of privatisation. We obviously went down that road before with the, the bin charges, and people know how disastrous that experience has, has been. And I think well, there's no doubt that there is a, a move in that direction. The government certainly wants to move in that direction, and Europe is certainly telling us that we must move in that direction. And to some extent, this is to uh, appease Europe because we've dropped the original proposal to introduce water charges. Yeah, but I mean, I think people can very see the the contrast between the appeasing or the standing up to the European Commission, depending on whose interests are threatened. And so when the European Commission says, oh, Apple, you know, one of the biggest multinational corporations in the world, owes Ireland, or owes people, the public in Ireland, 13 billion plus interest, then the government says, we're going to fight the European Commission all the way, we're going to go to the European Court of Justice, etc. But if there's any hints that the European Commission might want water charges, which obviously they do, they were part of the, the Troika agreement, which signed up for them, well then the government says, oh, well, we've got no choice, we have to impose water charges, etc. So there's a real hypocrisy there, um, whereby they, they pull on the green jersey to protect the interests of corporations, but then use it as an excuse to impose the kind of greenwashed austerity policies that they already would like to implement themselves. All right, we'll leave it there this morning, uh, but I'm sure we'll be back to it uh, in the near future. And thank you indeed for joining us. Solidarity TD for Dublin South West, Paul Murphy. Now, the government is ascertaining if older people are interested in downsizing uh, their homes. Uh, They've commissioned a polling company to carry out a survey of uh, some 1,000 people. This is on behalf of uh, the Department of Housing. And to those who are surveyed are asked questions like if they live alone or 
how many bedrooms they have in their existing home, how often are the bedrooms used, how many bedrooms are in constant use, do family members or friends stay over regularly or rarely, have they ever thought of downsizing and have they ever thought of selling their home. Just some of uh, the questions uh, that are being asked of older people as was reported in the Irish Examiner yesterday. Peter Kavanagh, Head of Communications and Public Affairs with Active Retirement Ireland joins us now. A very good morning to you Peter and thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. What do you make of this approach from the department? Um, to be honest with you, it kind of shocked us in Active Retirement Ireland. It was a little bit of a land to read the, uh, the kind of questions the survey was asking. You know, initially my gut reaction was this is not the sort of question that I'd ask someone who was 40 or 50. But for some reason, it seems okay to ask older people. And we've been quite clear on this since, since the idea of downsizing has been spoken about as one of the many solutions that could possibly happen to the housing crisis. You can't solve today's housing crisis by asking today's older people to downsize. All that happens is they end up in competition with first-time buyers for the smaller houses and apartments. What you need to do is plan for the future. So while downsizing is certainly something that needs to be addressed, this is absolutely not the manner we would suggest the Department of Housing do it. This is a, a decision for planning for the future. When we do new developments, the option to downsize has to be inbuilt. Universal design has to be part of it. People need to be able to stay in their homes for longer. This idea of being very, very intrusive and asking questions that you wouldn't even see on a census, it's, it's quite unusual. And the, the major point of concern is, while the trust that behaviour and attitudes um, as, a, as a polling company are quite reputable, we still don't have any assurances that none of these 1,000 older people they're going to speak to won't be, that they might be vulnerable. They might be already feeling under pressure for either from relatives or from the constant uh, narrative that the government is spinning through the media. Well, it's not just that. Uh, I mean, you'd have to, uh, I suppose, uh, imagine uh, that uh, people know their own minds to some degree. But you also need to look at uh, the questions that are being asked of them. Uh, some of the other questions here seem very suggestive. Would you consider moving into secure older community accommodation? Would you consider moving into a smaller nearby property if any existed? What financial incentives or initiatives would encourage you to do so? Would you consider having money in the bank from selling your home as a reason to move out? Or what other conditions, such as a garden, would be needed before you would consider moving out? They're very suggestive questions. They're not asking people, uh, well, did you spend all of your life working and paying your taxes to pay off your mortgage so that you could retire in what has been the family home for all of these years? Yeah, you're right, Michael. There isn't a single question saying, are you happy living in your home? You know, why did you choose this home? What do you like about the area you live in? What services are available? And the one thing that's really... Would you miss your neighbours? Would you miss your neighbours? What are the, what are the uh, things about your area that make you enjoy living there? And what are the things about your area that, you know, need to improve so that you can stay there? There seems to be a lack of a second option on this, which is, if you're going to stay at home, what's it going to be? And one of the questions that you mentioned there, it's quite leading as well. Mm. You know, uh, would you consider moving into secure older person's accommodation? Mm. I mean, you know... Because we're talking on LMFM, we have to realise that County Louth is a leader in Ireland when it comes to this. There is wonderful accommodation for older people in, in various facilities in Dundalk and RD. But outside of that, around the country, we're not a very you know progressive country when it comes to secure and comfortable and nice accommodation for older people that isn't a nursing home. Mm. You know, so, so I don't know what they're asking. Would you consider moving into this facility? And these facilities just aren't there. That's why this is something that has to be dealt with in a long-term sort of mindset. We are not talking about the people who are 65 or 70 today, because when we ask them to move out, 
they're moving into, you know, they're moving into properties that don't exist. Mm. So it, it really just it can't it can't work like this. It's not a very joined up idea to 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 have a survey like this. And to be honest with you, this wouldn't have hit the headlines if it wasn't a dedicated survey like this. If they had just done it as part of their regular, you know, companies like BNA, Red Sea, all of the yep. uh, the opinion poll companies, they ring thousands of people every mm. week. This would not be hitting the headlines. People would not be scared about this. People would not be feeling under pressure if they just woven in some subtle questions in a regular poll to ask people, oh, you happen to be over 65, let me ask you this. Yeah. You know? Mm. But, but now we're talking about the, the, the Department of Housing for some reason think this is a headline. This is a positive thing that they're doing. It absolutely isn't. And it's leaving people yet again feeling very, very scared and needing to be reassured that nobody is going to force anyone to downsize. Mm, but it is a, a, a leading. I mean, there is obviously a result uh, that is expected before the questions are put to people or that is hoped for before uh, the questions are put to people because there aren't options for people to respond to. I mean, when people move into a house, it's bricks and mortar, but by the time uh, we're taken out of that house at the end of our, our lives, uh, we'll have remembered blood, sweat and tears that went into it, uh, the uh, happy times, the sad times, uh, that shelf in the corner that always uh, gave trouble uh, and how you moved into uh, what was really just gravel at the back of the house and you turned it into a beautiful garden or whatever you've invested in that uh, property emotionally. Well, it's very difficult to make emotions come through in any kind of survey like this, but this one is particularly cold and you know it doesn't need to go into great detail in asking people tell me about the you know the emotional uh, attachment you have to your home tell me about the blood sweat and tears tell me about mm. your family the day your kids moved out the day they got married you know things like that it doesn't have to go into that level of detail but it does simply it should ask what do you like about where you live would you like to stay where you are it's fine asking somebody would you like to downsize if such a facility was available but if somebody says no why are they asking, well, great, how can we make, you know, where do you live? You live in Drogheda, how do we make Drogheda better? You know, mm. you, live in, you live in Summerhill, how do we make Summerhill better? You mm. know, how do we make Bettystown better? How do we make these places better for you to stay in your home? Because that's government policy, and that's what people want, and that's the cheapest thing for the government as well, for people to stay in their own homes as long as possible. But instead, on the one hand, we have a fair deal scheme, which is deeply unfair, forcing people into nursing homes, and on the other hand, we have a lack of home care not letting people stay in their homes for longer. And now we have this added pressure of, yeah, I know you want to stay in your home, but we're going to make it as difficult as possible, and we're going to ask you if you'd like to get the heck out of there. Yeah, I know you want to stay in your own home, but do you not feel guilty about living in a big old house like that with three empty bedrooms, uh, and there's people on the streets and people who are living in emergency accommodation, and people might say, no, I don't, uh, but should I? No, well, that, that's the thing. This is a level of doubt that we don't need mm. to put into people's minds because at the end of the day, a four- or a five-bedroom house that's currently being, you know, uh, lived in by a so-called empty nester, an older person living on their own, if that comes onto the market, it's not going to solve the housing crisis, you know? Mm. A lot of the houses that this is targeted that are big houses. They're only going to be bought up by cash buyers or by landlords, professional landlords, and they're going to go out onto the rental market at an inordinate rent, mm. huge amounts. This is not a case of, oh, would you not move out your house now so that lovely young couple down the road could buy it. That just doesn't happen. Mm. We're talking about people who are, who are living in houses that they could afford when they were working 
but the way the housing market has gone and the way the quality of life has gone downhill for people, young couples can't afford now. I so saw a phrase a in the papers uh, this morning, Peter, that I hadn't seen before. I mean, we often hear about elderly people who can't get out of hospital being described as bed blockers. Yeah. Uh, and now there's this new phrase about people who are living in big houses on their own as being house blockers. It's uh, quite... Uh, an unbelievable thought, uh, but uh, whilst you're with us, uh, you mentioned Fair Deal. Uh, there's to be a significant change to the Fair Deal scheme, it would seem, in the coming months, and this is uh, to be discussed by Cabinet today. What more do you know about that? Well, the, um, the, what's going to be discussed by Cabinet is something that's going to um, ease the burden for farming families. It's going to reclassify income from family farms. It is going to tie families who have a relative... Uh, going into a nursing home under the Fair Deal scheme and who have a family farm. It's going to tie that family to the farm for longer, but it's going to alleviate the financial burden by reclassifying the income from actual income to investment income, which I think is good. Uh, I I did mention earlier on the interview the Fair Deal is unfair, and what we want is uh, more of a focus on home care. We've seen recently that home care is, is... you know, it ends up being cancelled early for the year and people can't get any access to home care hours. That's the priority, keep people in their homes. But there are always going to be about 4% of older people who need a nursing home mm. because of dementia, because of a stroke, mm. because of severe... Well, it's a, and when they have a family farm, they shouldn't be penalised. You know, it OK, well, it's an unfair scheme because some people end up with dementia and most don't. Uh, and uh, if you're in uh, the minority of families uh, who need nursing care uh, for one of your relatives, uh, well then you're unfortunate whether you're rich or you're poor. But is this a a redistribution of uh, the costs in favour of the wealthy, those who have assets, those who have farms and so on, so that uh, ultimately those who have less will end up paying more and those who have more will end up paying less? No, I, I would disagree with that because it's proportional. It's 7.5% of the value of the property every year. So it's proportional. If you own a €100,000 house on a terrace in the middle mm. of the town, or if you own a 750000 But it will be capped now at, at three it, it years. Be capped, mm. It's capped at three years, mm. but it's proportional to the income. What's important about this decision that's going in front of, of Cabinet is that fa- farmers who, you know, realistically, the average farmer is not earning a lot of money. Their income is reclassified, and it means that there won't be a big lien on that to pay for the nursing home fees because 80% of the income is taken. So this, you know, we change the category that farming income goes into, meaning that the family can continue to operate the farm. It can be signed over to the children, to the son or to the daughter. They have to, they do have to remain with the farm for six years instead of three, but there's far more income coming back in. And when you consider that suckler farmers are earning on average 13,000 a year, we are not talking about something that's going to disproportionately benefit the wealthy. This is going to help farmers who are struggling to make ends meet at the moment and hopefully the big, big hope, particularly for Irish agriculture, is that this encourages the next generation to take up farming and to stick with farming. Okay. That's one of the big problems that's happening. The average age of farmers is quite, quite high because kids aren't taking it up. This might hopefully be a step in the right direction in trying to get people to take over family farms. Peter, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Peter Kavanagh is Head of Communications and Public Affairs with Active Retirement Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. A new report on homelessness in uh, this country from a group of academics uh, from uh, the University of London and Oxford Brookes University suggests how terrifyingly easy it is uh, to become homeless and uh, that it takes just a few bits of bad luck or uh, lacking in strong family supports to result in 
finding yourself in a situation where you're looking for emergency uh, accommodation. The result of that, well, it's destructive on children and significantly affects uh, their mental and physical development. Uh, we'll talk about this now with uh, Saoirse Brady, Legal and Policy Director with uh, the Children's Rights Alliance. Good morning to you, Saoirse, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, this research published in the Geographical Journal is very much in line uh, with uh, your own research uh, and uh, comes before you appear before the Housing Committee tomorrow. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. It's a, a very ser- serious situation and a, an ongoing situation which is mapped out very clearly for us in this report, I think. Yes, good morning, Michael, and thanks for um, the opportunity to come on this morning. As you said, we're in front of the Housing Committee tomorrow morning, um, along with the Ombudsman for Children, Focus Ireland and Mercy Law Resource Centre, all of whom have issued uh, various reports which really do echo the findings of the report that's been launched this morning. Um, I suppose last year we would have launched our homeworks report which looked at the educational impact um, on children experiencing homelessness and while it focused on education it looked at all of those things that we see in this report about you know children not having the space to learn to crawl Mm. to walk to develop properly we've heard from our members um, about you know one child who had to go to physiotherapy because um, they couldn't understand why he, could, he didn't have the strength to stand up and it's because he was being pushed around in a buggy all day and didn't have the chance to develop his leg muscles by, you know, walking mm. around. Um, I so, think I, I remember you telling us before as well about a, a little girl who ended up wetting herself before she arrived at school. She had left for school without a, a breakfast and the journey was so long uh, that uh, obviously uh, the toilet became a, a problem. This report today uh, echoes that, as you say. It talks about a seismic impact impact on people who are left unable to cook, do their laundry or take their children to school without expensive, time-consuming journeys across the city. And that's what we would be hearing from members. You know, um, you know, some of the teachers' unions are telling us for the first time they see children coming to school in dirty clothes. So some teachers are actually, um, where possible, buying extra sets of uniforms or clothes to have um, to try and ensure that those children aren't stigmatised. Teachers are doing an amazing job in schools by, by doing that. They're trying to let the children catch up in their sleep if they have a sensory room. They're putting them in their own bean bags because, as you said, some children are making very arduous journeys across mm. the city, you know, maybe two and a half hours. Um, we've heard of children getting up at half five in the morning, skipping breakfast to make sure that they make the bus to school on time, um, having to take a couple of buses to get there and then going in. And we know that when children haven't eaten, when they haven't slept properly, they can't concentrate and they're irritable. It has a huge impact on their mental health. Um, they experience anxiety. So all of these findings, quite a number of reports are, mm. um, you know, coming out now, which are showing the kind of longer term impacts. I think this report that came out this morning is particularly interesting because it was um, done over the course of a year. So it was, you know, it, it took a bit more time and they, they monitored the children over that period mm. of time. And focused and in on the experiences yeah. of 16 families uh, and some of the members of those families very young. And uh, there was a, a new aspect to life uh, without a place to call home from uh, my point of view in that I I didn't er ever contemplate that it would have affected young children as much as this survey seems to indicate uh, because they're talking about speech problems, uh, toddlers not developing uh, the ability to speak uh, or coming uh, to speech late uh, or uh, indeed crawling and, and other developmental issues like that. 
Yes, and, you know, um, in our own research, one of the, the stories that came out was a, a little boy who wouldn't, um, who was in a crash and he wouldn't um, speak or eat when he was in the hotel. He would only speak or eat when he was in the crash. Um, he got really upset when the children went outside for outdoor play because he was told to put his coat on. He thought he had to go back to the hotel. Um, you know, so we're hearing all of these issues, which obviously have a, a developmental impact, but will have a longer term impact for those children. And unless um, supports are put in place for them and their parents at a very early stage, we don't know um, what the longer term impact is going to be, you know, what the extent of that is going to be. So we really do need to address it now. There's a very disturbing front page on uh, the Irish Daily Mirror today. Uh, the headline is Streets of Shame. Uh, the photograph is of a, a woman and her three children and it uh, talks about uh, homeless children forced to queue at a, a roadside for food. A 35% rise in demand for the feedless, feed, feed, feed or homeless uh, group uh, that, who are uh, emptying van loads of food within an hour or so and uh, there's more people than there is food uh, queues uh, for uh, people looking for food uh, from this charity uh, and I think uh, the headline uh, probably depicts the scene very well when it, it talks about uh, uh, streets of shame the way it does. Yes, it's not right that this is happening um, in Ireland today um, that children have to queue for food and I, what I noted about that ar- article is while a lot of those people who are queuing are homeless Others aren't. Others just can't afford food because they're putting all their money into actually paying the rent or mortgage. Mm. Um, and, you know, the Children's Rights Alliance is based in Smithfield and we'd be around the corner from the Capuchin Centre mm. and we see queues of people there all the time um, and from all walks of life. So, so this is, you know, it's a homeless issue, but it's also a food poverty issue. And um, again, this is something that I think as a society, we just should not accept um, and we need to find a way to actually break this deadlock. Um, you know, we need to invest in public housing. We need to get these families and, uh, you know, everyone experiencing homelessness out of, um, you know, inappropriate emergency accommodation like B&Bs and hotels. And one of the other things that came out of that, that um, Irish Daily Mirror article yeah. that was very clear was the fact that people have to ring around hotels themselves, that yeah. the services don't even have the resources to do that for them. You know, you might be talking about a mum who has doesn't have the fiver to put credit on her phone and have to make all of those calls to hotels, which will obviously cost money. Yeah. We've heard of some parents who actually just present to the hotel and go in and basically turn up with their kids, all their belongings and say, look, I actually have nowhere to go for the night. And then Families are being pushed out of those hotels when there's a big concert on, when there's a big match on um, for events like St. Patrick's Day, you know, when hotels need those rooms back because they're going to be oversubscribed. Yeah. So hotel accommodation isn't, you know, it isn't the solution to, to the homeless crisis. Indeed, uh, the Pope's visit uh, raised such uh, concerns last summer. We leave it there for the moment, though, Saoirse, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Saoirse Brady is the Legal and Policy Director with uh, the Children's Rights Alliance.
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you probably know, Father Tony Flannery is a redemptorist priest who was silenced by the church because of his views on how the church should reform itself. He's also the founder of the Association of Catholic Priests, and he joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Tony Flannery. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for joining us. You had hoped to return to full-time ministry. I was reading about this in the start today. I understand you were writing about it yourself in uh, The Western People and uh, you asked your order to restore your ministry to you. Uh, That hasn't happened. Uh, You're not happy with the response that you've received from them uh, and uh, you're suggesting now that uh, you may never return to ministry. It would be difficult at least for you to do that and that your desire to do so has waned. Why so? Well, I suppose I've been out of ministry now for seven years, Michael, and I'm in my 70s, so I'm well past retirement age anyway. And, uh, yeah, my enthusiasm for ministry, I suppose my enthusiasm for any work has waned as I get older, which is a normal enough process. Um, Where I have written about this, Michael, is in my own blog, TonyFlannery.com, and it's a complicated enough story at this stage, so anybody who wants to delve into it, TonyFlannery.com will give them the details. You see, what happened, Michael, was in 2012, Benedict was still Pope, the Vatican, particularly the Congregation of Doctrine and Faith, had all enormous power. And they ordered the Redemptors to take me out of ministry. So it was actually the Redemptors who took me out of ministry, not the Vatican. Now, they did it under orders from the Vatican, but there you go. Mm. Now, seven years later, everything has changed. Francis is in there. The Congregation of Doctrine of Faith has lost most of its power. And Francis recently produced a document. Uh, he has been saying, Constantly, they produce a formal document now, and then it he outlines that in the case of dealing with somebody's writing, the church authorities are not happy with. It is essential that they enter into dialogue with the author of the writings. Now, nobody entered mm. into dialogue with no, me. No, you were just banished. Yeah, I mm. was just banished, mm. and you see. The fact that I was banished by the Redemptors, ultimately, even though they say they didn't have much choice, which I don't agree with, what I was looking for, now that the Vatican has changed radically, that Francis has taken the power away, that he's clearly outlining the different process. I'm saying to my Redemptor spirit, look, it was he that took me out of ministry seven years ago. Mm. He has the power to restore me to ministry now. And I thought it was a fairly obvious and simple request, but I'm afraid mm. <laughs> it didn't come to anything uh, like uh, that. They, they've suggested to you that you write to the congregation for the doctrine uh, and ask them for clemency. Yeah, they, that's what they want to do, in other words, to appeal to the congregation of the doctrine of the faith to allow me back seven years later. And that, for me, is is restoring the power to the CDF, the power that Mm. precisely the power that Francis has taken from them. So I can't understand that as a process. And I suppose I'm very disappointed with my redemptive spirits. I think they're very weak. And uh, or maybe, maybe the alternative is that they're quite happy to have me where I am. 
said that I mm-hmm. might do more trouble as I was back in ministry. I don't know. Okay. That is the, the situation anyway, Mike. Well, the Congregation for the Doctrine obviously had uh, problems uh, with your beliefs and how you articulated them, uh, and a, a lot of uh, that related to your belief on how the Church should reform. But you didn't do anything uh, uh, wrong in the eyes of the Church personally, did you? No, not at all. You uh, said that there should be women priests, uh, gay marriage, that sort of thing? It, it, the sort of stuff I was writing about in 2012 is just in the common domain at this mm. stage. Everybody is discussing issues like this. That are, like Nothing that I said then is, is anything dramatic at all. It's really old fashioned at this stage. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I suspect, you asked me, did I do anything wrong? I suspect in the eyes of the Vatican being involved in uh, the formation of the Association of Catholic Priests was probably something that they they did not like because uh, the Association of Catholic Priests was set up as an independent voice for priests. And priests are not supposed to have independent voices. They're supposed to be subject to their bishops and their superiors. So I think maybe in the end it was that more than anything else they can down on me for. God, it's unbelievable, isn't it? <laughs> it's a strange situation, mm. Michael. And, and like seven years is a good while. Uh, and in a lot of ways, it, they've been good years for me because I've been very involved mm. in the international church reform movement and travelled to Lartnet and an enormous amount of very interesting people. But it's strange the way things work. As I get older... In some ways, I'm finding it harder now emotionally to cope with the situation than I did when it happened first. Strange the way humanity works. But that's that's mm. my situation, and that's why I made the request to the Redemptor Superiors and, and why I'm disappointed with their response. Uh, I'm not sure if you've uh, seen uh, the latest reason for the LGBT community uh, to be upset by the Vatican. Oh, I did, I did. This is a a 30-page document called Male and Female. He created them, uh, and uh, it suggests uh, that the people who are transgender in this world are annihilating nature. That's right, yes, (laughs) It's very hard to make sense of a document like that. Uh, it flies in the face of so much that we have discovered in recent years about humanity, about sexual identity. Uh, that, that sexual identity is actually uh, not anything like as clear cut as that Vatican document makes it out to be. Mm. Uh, so uh, documents like that are so unhelpful in these times and just well they're saying God God made you God made you male or God made you female and uh, to suggest otherwise is nothing more than a confused concept of freedom that's what they're saying that's what they're saying but I think we're learning much more now about the the range of uh, sexual identity and orientation that You're, is present in you, you never belonged in that church at all Tony did you <laughs> <laughs> maybe not but it has changed a lot mm. I mean Francis has done so much to open the thing up and to allow for free discussion mm. uh, like in all sorts of ways I'd be I'm much more comfortable in the church now as it is than at any stage in my life Mm. Um, 
but there you go. Well, we've always had very interesting discussion with you on I'm the program. Always program good over. to talk to you, Michael. Always good Thank to you talk very to you. much. Thank you very much Bye. indeed, Father Tony Flannery. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. John was in touch in relation to water charges and it makes his mind boggles when he thinks of someone going into a shop and paying one fifty for a litre of water and thinking nothing about it, mm. but then won't pay for the water coming out of the tap. And then on the other hand, what about a person who has a swimming pool, Michael? Mm-hmm. Should they pay for filling it? They'll probably fill it because you're going to change the water. They're probably going to fill it a couple of times a year. Mm. And should they not pay for that? He wonders. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, nobody. Um, some people, of course, would say that you are paying for water all of the time, and that's uh, what your taxes are for. And says that nobody should be allowed to get away with wasting water. It makes sense to her to have some sort of fee if you have no regard or respect for the water that you're being given. There are people who'd be out there hosing their gardens day and night if there's mm. no cap whatsoever on okay. it. Mm. However, mm. <laughs> and there's always a however, mm. Mm. <laughs> Mark from Dunnacarney uh, feels that this is a way of bringing in water charges by the back mm. door and says that he believes the Fianna Fáil have let the people down again. They'll start off with this excess thing and then the next thing you know, you'll be paying for mm. the water. It'll be the same as the bin charges when that was brought in. We were told it mm. would only be the same as what the councils were charging yeah. and then gradually went up and up and up. Yeah. Well, when you say excessive usage, it sounds an awful lot and maybe it is uh, as uh, they're starting it off uh, but it's above an allowance of thousands of litres you wouldn't believe how much water you actually use all the time but uh, it's above thousands of litres uh, and that's where it's starting and the problem is is that that allowance can Mm. reduce and Mm. as that allowance reduces uh, the definition of excessive uh, becomes smaller if you like uh, so that uh, you end up paying for water that you would use on a yes, reasonable basis. Yes, and that's what mm. Mark fears. Yeah. Anyway, mm. yeah. the message he has to anybody listening yeah. in that might be in power is he has his boots ready in the shed if he needs to go marching. Yeah, well, fair play <laughs> if that's the case because uh, you may be marching on your own. The only soldier marching in line perhaps uh, because I think everybody will have forgotten about it by then and they'll also think, well, it doesn't affect me. Margaret says that this is an attempt to get water charges in and says most people I know don't willfully waste water Hmm. says Margaret Uh, Eileen from Navin worries that Irish water will try and get money off people who have a leak and don't even know about the fact that they have a leak and Mm. this concerns her well there is the first fix freeze that still does that still stand it still stands yeah I think there's a lot of people wishing that they uh, were hearing Irish water uh, impose a hose pipe ban or something similar to that because there's an awful lot of water falling out of the sky this weather listen uh, let's uh, talk about uh, our health because your health is your wealth Uh, this is a message uh, to men this week. It's Men's Health Week and uh, the message uh, from the Irish Farmers Association uh, is that health is the most important asset that you have in terms of running your farm. Let's uh, hear from Caroline Farrell who's uh, the IFA National Farm Family and Social Affairs Chair. Good morning to you Caroline and uh, thank you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So for joining us, I suppose, in Awareness Week like this gives organisations like you the opportunity to ask people to step back and think about what they're doing and how they're doing it. Absolutely, it does indeed. Good morning, Michael. It's good to good talk morning to you and you too. Mm-hmm. For the men to mind their health, look after themselves, take time to see how, how they are feeling, and not of stress, stresses and pressures on farming, on the community, both physically and in need to look out for themselves. And when you talk about health, you're talking about physical health and also mental health as well. And you're making the point uh, that this is a particularly busy time of the year for farmers, but they should take some time out so uh, that they can uh, I- enjoy something that they're into or spend time with their family and friends. Absolutely. Um, I'd say it is a busy time. The silage being cut at the moment. Farmers are working day and night to get the grass in and whatever and they need to the weather isn't as meanable this year as it was last year each mm. each season brings its own challenges and people need to be able to step back for a few minutes take stock of where they are and look after themselves make sure that they're not suffering from any you know if there's any ailments to get them checked out don't leave them lingering uh, they're there uh, as a warning that maybe something else might be underlying the symptom mm. and get things checked out and keep well. All right, and uh, I suppose half of the people that you're talking to uh, probably have a, a pain in their back, uh, not with the work, but literally a pain in their back. Uh, this is uh, an amazing, but, but probably not too uh, uh, surprising a, a statistic given uh, the type of work that's uh, involved in farming. Yeah, it's, it's very manual, even though there's a lot of automation in it. There's an, an awful lot of manual work pulling and dragging uh, sick calves, uh, bales, cleaning sheds with forks, fucking out solder. Even though the sale of it is mechanical now, there's still a huge amount that's actually physical and this takes toll on on your body. Mm. Um, so you just have to say, watch your manual handling, get it, get it right and it'll save a lot of problems. Mm. No, simple things like that. Yeah, and, and follow the advice that there is. Uh, there's lots of it uh, on lifting and, and that sort of uh, thing. Uh, other issues uh, that uh, farmers should be watching out for in terms of minding themselves. Well, let's say always keep keep an eye on on, on your on your mental health. Um, hearing, you know, where where safety protection for your your hearing. Um, farmers aren't inclined to to wear uh, ear protection. Um, 
that the, the volumes of the machinery they're using is very high and mm. they just kind of get used to it and don't realise the damage that it might be doing to their to their hearing as um, as time goes on and the same and you know working with chemicals make sure if you're you know you're properly protected uh, when you're setting up any sort of dusty any chemicals fertilizer or even even dry hay and things yeah, like that and a certain it. amount of dust in them to look out for those kind of things and don't take shortcuts because uh, I'm sure to a large degree uh, people are, are fully uh, aware of where the risks lie or at least uh, if uh, they don't work in haste uh, and uh, take uh, their time to some extent uh, they'll uh, follow what uh, they know is the right thing to do Caroline we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us Caroline Farrell IFA National Farm Family and Social Affairs Chair Marie uh, you've uh, some more calls for us there. I have indeed. Just going back to your interview yesterday with the newly elected Meath Labour councillor, Annie mm. Hoy, with some response to that. John called in to say, my daughter is a public servant, recently had a child and her biggest obstacle when she got back to work was her female colleagues, Michael, not her male colleagues. I've been involved with a political party for 45 years. We've never had an issue with women running. It was getting them to run that was the problem. Not sure, though, if quotas is the right way to go about it. Mm. I, they didn't say what the problem no, was. No, no, okay, no didn't yeah. say what the problem was. I didn't take that particular call. Um, I'd be interested to find out more to know what the problem was. Maybe the women didn't like uh, her breastfeeding or maybe they uh, didn't like the idea that uh, uh, she may need uh, additional support or time off to yes, mind the child yes. or to get to the crash or whatever I don't know yes mm-hmm. well Marion mm-hmm. says enjoyed your interview with Annie Hoy mm. she was very open in her responses to you uh, Michael uh, regarding she wasn't her really she was a real re- politician <laughs> fudging all of the <laughs> well, questions she's all talking of the time. <laughs> specifically regarding yeah. her fear that having a family yeah. uh, could impinge on her political mm. career and Marion says that that's something that a lot of women have to mm. think about mm. in relation to their careers because like or not, you can get penalised for taking time off and coming back because you lose time. You may not keep up with Mm. the latest technology or advances in Mm. in technology. And she says that she feels it's not talked about enough. So she enjoyed that. It's an absolute reality. I mean, uh, Mm. there's no doubt about it. There's a lot of young women who wonder why they didn't get the job. Uh, Maybe it's because the interviewer was wondering, well, are you planning on having a family? Mm. Yes. Yeah. Martin Mm. from RD uh, also uh, was listening into the interview and he feels that uh, there should be space made available in Leinster House for women to breastfeed for, mm. the, for the TDs and elected representatives. Well, the is saying that yes. there will be, uh, yes. including in the chamber. Right, and he feels also that they should look at maybe providing childcare facilities. There is a crash in Lancer House, yes. Okay, because he feels that that would be uh, a help to uh, those political mothers, if you like. Feels that it is tough on mothers Mm. to enter politics and to try and keep their families Mm. going. The problem, uh, I think, uh, with Lancer House, Lancer House uh, seems to be doing a a lot of good, as uh, Sean O'Friel outlined in his interview over the weekend. But one of the problems is uh, maternity leave or paternity leave. Uh, It's just not possible for politicians to get maternity leave uh, because you have to be in the House to vote. It's a a constitutional requirement. And in order to change it, you would need to have a a referendum to change the Constitution. But I, as I was saying to Annie yesterday, and I, I do think that there, it's a different type of work and that if you're putting yourself forward to represent the people in the National Parliament, I wonder 
is it the right time? I'm not saying one way or the other. I think it's a, a question that uh, is worthy of being asked. Is it the right time to plan for a family? Or if you're planning for a family, should uh, your partner look after the child? Absolutely. Mm. What, that you should be able to have a, a child and take maternity leave? Well, I mean, now, I mean, there mm. is, when you say your partner, there is now, they are looking Oh, yeah, no, 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 yeah. no, no, no. Th- th- that's what I was suggesting, yes, that, that yeah. if you're going to run uh, for national politics, yes. well, then you do the job uh, yeah. and you don't take time out mm. to be with your children. Mm. I mean, that, that, that was the question. Right, uh, yeah, uh, and, and, and that you look to your partner to look after that end, rather than yes. the women looking yes. after it, yeah, you know. I know, it's a hard mm. one because yeah. you do have that bond you know, when you have a baby. Mm. But is that, that the time to be having a family? Uh, I mean, is that not a decision that you should be taking? Either to run for national politics or to have a family? I don't know. Or Michael, to have your partner look after When, when I child. look at when I mm. had my children, yeah. and I know I'm probably mm. going sidetracking a little bit, but I worked as a freelancer mm. at the time. Yeah. I had two weeks mm. off work mm. when I had my first child. Mm. I was back working. Mm-hmm. You know, I just worked, for, I was working from home, granted, mm. but I was still working. Yeah. I still had to go mm. out and do. And you find a lot of people in our industry Mm. are back very quickly. Oh, I'm sure that's the case. But, I mean, theoretically speaking, uh, if you were to introduce maternity leave and we had a a female Taoiseach, uh, you could Mm. have the Taoiseach Mm. on maternity leave for a year. Yes. I don't. That doesn't sit well with me somehow. Right. Mm. No, it's an interesting Mm. one and certainly... There's lots of threads to that to think yeah. about. I mean, I it's think not, it's not straightforward. And, and, and I'm picking politics as a unique situation. Mm. Uh, I'm not uh, applying the same logic to any other job in the country, but to politics. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, mm. I mean, I get what you're saying there. Mm. If you were the head of the country and mm. you had to be there for important decisions, or a TD, you know, yes. I mean, some of these votes come down. To, you're, you're being elected. You're being handsomely paid to represent people in terms of framing laws and improving lives. You just have to do what the teachers do and try and time it that you have it at the beginning of the summer <laughs> recess. How long did the politicians have? I don't know. Do the teachers the time it? Uh, in the summer. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. a good few months there that you could yeah. have well, that's if, true, you, yeah. if you timed it mm. to a T. Mm. But anyway, just getting yeah. back mm. to Martin, he feels that the bar mm. should be got rid of in Leinster House and more facilities for mums and their children. Nothing okay. about the dads, yeah. but I'm yeah. sure they'd yeah. be considered yeah. as well. Yeah, okay. The public bar, that is. Yes. That's where they sell the alcohol. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Take right. that out mm. and make more room. Okay. All right. Interesting suggestion. Thanks okay. for that, Martin. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. Thanks, Marie, for bringing us those calls this morning. If you'd like to add to what's been said, our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the idea of uh, the Scottish Navy boarding Irish fishing vessels, uh, resting the skipper and its crew, impounding uh, the boat and its catch, and bringing uh, to court all those involved and possibly fining, possibly even imprisoning uh, Irish fishermen for going to work perfectly legally, suggesting that it's an illegal action is an awful lot for an awful lot of people to accept as being a reasonable behaviour by another country but that is uh, the situation uh, as it has been outlined to us by the Scottish Government uh, the Cabinet here will meet today but it's not expected to discuss this issue because uh, Minister Creed and uh, Minister Coveney are away it seems on business uh, so uh, it'll hold over. They say though that the heat has gone out of this uh, but there are many questions surrounding what happens at 
Rockall. Matt Carthy is a Sinn Féin MEP and he joins us now. And uh, there is the common fisheries policy, uh, which, uh, of course, applies to the Scottish as much as it does to us. And it seems to be ignored in all of this. What role is there for the European Parliament in this ongoing dispute? Good morning, Michael. And yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, policy is an EU policy framework. Um, much of which, it has to be said, we in Ireland have reason to be um, unhappy about. I think it's a fairly widely accepted viewpoint that Irish fishing communities have been ill-served by the fisheries policy and the approach of successive governments. Um, but you're right, that policy framework is very clear in relation to um, these particular waters, the waters around Rockall, um, and the wider um, the wider context in which fishing can take place. And that's why the actions of the Scottish government have been so bizarre, to say the least. Because, <coughs> excuse me, um, on an annual basis, a quota is actually agreed, and the places in which that mm. quota can be secured. And they're fishing under quotas, European quotas, uh, which the Scottish are ignoring by their. Uh, by by the way they're looking on the Irish uh, trawlers. One of the actual aspects of the quota is actually called the Rockall Haddock Quota. So anybody can see quite clearly that it is widely accepted that the quota covers this particular area. So there are all sorts of reasons being um, suggested as to why it is that Scotland has taken these I- issues now. Well, there's Rockall and uh, the 12 nautical mile radius, and then there's the Rockall Basin. So, which does that quota cover? Well, there is no 12 mile um, um, radius um, for a rock. Um, the radius that is put in place in terms of protecting the national integrities covers the Irish coastline, covers the Scottish coastline, covers, yes, the coastline of offshore islands, it doesn't cover rocks in the middle of the sea um, Mm. and it would be bizarre to suggest that it would. So in terms of what can happen at a European level, we have yet to find out. Um, I'm on my way to Brussels right now. My first port of call will be the office of Commissioner Vella, who has responsibility. I think it would be helpful if he were to make a statement that just reinforces the Irish position um, and I will be seeking him to do that to state categorically that these waters are um, absolutely legitimate fishing waters for our um, for our um, fishing fleet, um, and that the fishing activities that are taking place within them um, can happen. Because I think the law, I have to say, is fairly clear on this international law as well as European mm. European law. Um, you know, one of the um, aspects of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea says very clearly rocks which cannot sustain human habitation or economic life of their own shall have no exclusive economic zone or continental shelf. That <coughs> appears as if it was written for Rockall in terms of what it is and its role within the w- w- within the um, marine life um, of, the, of the region that we're talking about here. So I will be making representations to the Commissioner today to ask him to make that clarifying statement. Obviously, we hope that at a bilateral level between ourselves and the Scottish and the British authorities, it has to be said, who mm. are the people who... What about the Danish? Well, you see, there's four actual... Mm. Yeah, Iceland claims, as well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, ...claims on, on rock gold. But there has basically been a, an agreement of sorts in place that while those differential claims 
um, are um, are enacted and without agreement that we can have a situation as we've had for decades for Irish mm. fishing fleets and indeed others can use the Rockall um, Basin in order to um, to catch their quota within within quota. Um, so we now have a situation where we have Irish fishing vessels that are in Rockall are planning to go to the Rockall uh, region mm. in, in a very short period of time. But they're being told by the Irish government that they're operating absolutely within the law and that they can continue to do so. But on the other hand, they're told that the Scottish government <coughs> plan to um, perhaps enforce their decision that these waters can um, cannot be fished by Irish vessels. Mm. So we have the threat that you have outlined there where perhaps you could see... Um, the Scottish um, um, naval fleet moving in and arresting or confiscating either fish or vessels and, and arresting the, um, the crew on board. But I, I take it the, the threat Irish. to the Irish vessels and the Irish fishermen is also extended to Icelandic vessels and to Danish vessels. Uh, will you be speaking with Danish MEPs uh, uh, about this and how they intend to respond? I actually don't know if there is a huge number of Danish vessels using this particular area if, they're, if, they're, if their quota um, requires them to use the Rockall Basin in order to, to deliver upon their, their quota and that's something that I will be looking for. But they for may the see point. it as a land grab or whatever, a water grab, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, oh absolutely, this is, um, this is a really, really bizarre move on the part of the Scottish authorities. Mm. Now, I've heard suggestions that this is down to domestic political considerations mm. Um, it would appear to me that that would be... Because the SNP uh, are seen uh, to have betrayed the Scottish fishermen and now, uh, before the next election, they're uh, playing to the fisherman gallery, if you like. Uh, but whilst all of that is going on, we have this bizarre situation where men go out to work and uh, may end up uh, in front of a, a Scottish court. Uh, and there is this question, some people would feel that we should send our boats out before their boats arrive. Well, I think in the first instance, what's required is uh, every attempt possible to de-escalate this situation. Now, we had uh, over the weekend, we had a number of media reports, and it appeared to me that this was being pressed by the government as to why Nicola Sturgeon didn't raise this matter in our bilateral meeting with uh, um, on Taoiseach Leo Varadkar. What has since transpired is that Simon Covey was informed by his direct opposite um, a number of months ago that this was an issue that the Scots intended to pursue. Um, and, and Mr. Coveney said yesterday that they told him that they would get, give um, the Irish a week's notice um, as to somehow there was bad faith. And there's lots of questions in terms of the actions of the Scottish. But the question isn't why did Nicola Sturgeon raise this with Leo Varadkar. The question now needs to be, knowing as we do that this had been raised at ministerial level, why Leo Varadkar didn't raise it with his opposite number in terms of the First Minister at a Scottish level. And what's required now is for every level, at diplomatic and governmental level, including that of Taoiseach to First Minister and indeed Taoiseach to Prime Minister at a British level, for these to be these issues to be raised and addressed in an attempt to de-escalate. Because we don't want to have a situation where there's a standoff of fleets or... Of, mm. um, well, you, you, you uh, don't... I take it you don't envisage a situation where Irish Navy vessels will be facing off Scottish Navy vessels. No, well, and we would hope that that doesn't happen, but I think there needs to be very clear um, language from the government that our fishing vessels will be protected. And I don't think necessarily that requires the Navy, but we do have a sea fisheries 
Protection Agency mm. and any fishing community that you will speak to in Ireland will tell you that these guys are very rigorous in upholding the law um, when it comes to Irish fishing vessels. Well, the opposite must also be the case. They must also play a role in protecting Irish fishing vessels that are operating within the law, both uh, Irish domestic, EU and indeed um, international law. So we need to provide assurances mm. to our fishing communities that yes, we will do everything at a diplomatic level to de-escalate this situation and to resolve it through those means. But we also need... And the, 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 the Tarnish just said we have to take the heat out of this, uh, uh, but he also said that we won't be sending Irish naval vessels out to Rock Hall. Uh, but surely he should be saying it would be unacceptable for Scottish Navy vessels uh, to police the waters and to board Irish fishing vessels. And it would be absolutely unacceptable. And that is the point that I'm making, that the Irish government needs to be unequivocal in saying that, yes, he's right, we need to take the heat out of this, we need to de-escalate this as it currently transpires. But we also need to be unequivocal in saying we will not allow our fishing vessels that are operating within the law and they are very mm. rigid and strict laws in relation to quota and in relation to maritime rules and all the rest of it and any fishing vessel within operating with an Irish licence that doesn't operate to them very quickly um, is bared down on by the agencies such as the Sea Fisheries Protection Agency um, when they're operating within the law on the other hand they need to be assured that the protections of the Irish state will also be offered to them so while absolutely the first Port of call here, um, to use a pun, is absolutely to um, de-escalate the situation, to take the heat, to use that phrase, out of the situation and to use diplomatic measures and means in order to do that. But at the other end of the scale, we also need to be saying very clearly that we will be protecting our fishing fleets. Mm. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin MEP. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now we're going to hear about a programme, the Eden programme, which has been designed to, to help people who have attempted suicide or have suicidal thoughts. Caroline McGuigan is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Suicide or Survive, or SOS, if you prefer, which she established in 2003. And she's on the line. Good morning to you, Caroline. And, uh, Good morning, thanks Mike. for joining us. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah. Good form. Well, the the sun good. is shining a bit here okay. in Shank Hill, so that's good. Very good. Well, you're not only promoting this programme, you are, in, in fact, yourself a, a former participant of the programme. Tell us a, a little bit about what Eden did for you to begin well, with. Well, I actually developed it. I actually created it, Michael, from my own personal experience. So I, I have been working around mental health and suicide prevention for nearly 20 years, and it came from a personal journey myself many moons ago of having um, got caught in anxiety and depression with uh, limited supports I suppose and limited choices around building my life back up Um, and out of it I suppose what was born Michael was what if and it was what if certain um, things were offered or services or opportunities and particularly around suicide so I had attempted suicide and and, and was quite horrendous I had died and um, I, I was brought back and in all of it I thought how did I get here? How did this mm. happen? Not why me, because I think, well, mm. why not me? But I did think I never set out in life to ever, ever think I'd have a, a thought or feeling of suicide. And I never 
set out in life to believe one day I would seriously consider death by suicide. So mm. what came you probably preempted my question uh, about what you meant when you said limited support, because I, I take it the same level of support is uh, available, generally speaking, to people. Well, well, yeah, in those days, and, and, and the support is increasing, but the bigger one I found, Michael, was stigma, and it was my own stigma and community and society that somewhere along the way, and I know for me, and I can only talk from my own experience, but I, I, I'm a therapist and I've worked for years mm. around mental health, and um, what I've started to realise is that if we can get our head around that, if you think in this moment in time, Michael, 5% of every population in the world has woke up today, so think of Ireland, and 5% mm. will have a thought of feeling of death by suicide. Now, what that can mean is kill off the despair, kill off the pain, and if you don't have another op- option or another way, that's where suicide comes in. So if you think of Crow Park and fill it three times in this moment, mm-hmm. that's the amount of people now, as me and you speak, that have a thought or feeling of suicide. And it's about saying, look, that is normal. That comes into people's lives. So let's look at putting the safety net in onto that thought and feeling passes. You know, I had none of that awareness and I didn't. I would have never spoke like that because I was riddled with shame. And a lot of people will still be caught in shame of, okay. you know, what will people think of me? So that's how the Eden came about mm. and it was developed over the last 16 years. There's some people scratching their head now and wondering what you're on about. Uh, what do you mean shame? What, what would you be ashamed of? Uh, what, what do you mean when you talk about stigma? Yeah, and, and I suppose my experience, and I've worked very privileged to work with thousands of people, it's there's something about that if you're struggling in life, you're less than. And also, if you're struggling in life, well, then how can you keep a job? How can you rear a family? You can. And, and you can have it all going on at the one time. But for some reason, when we say suicide or depression or anxiety, there's something about less than that's carried in our communities. Um, and this idea of we should be all rocking and getting things right. And it, it, Mental health is messy. My mental health is messy. But it doesn't stop me being a therapist or a CEO mm. or a mother. Hmm. Yeah, but what do you mean by stigma? I mean, what 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 are, are people embarrassed about? I take it that they're embarrassed to think that they have a mental health problem. Why are they embarrassed? Yeah, I think the other side is every human being on this planet has mental health. So mm. you have mental health the same way you have dental health and physical health. Now, mental health comes with a big story of psychiatric, the house on the hill, yeah. um, hide it, don't let anybody know throw it under the carpet. So it comes with a couple of hundred euros history that isn't really good and we're trying to break that and that's where, because my 15 year old says, our niece said to me there the other day what's that word stigma mean? Exactly mm. what you're saying yeah, Michael yeah, and I yeah, said, mm. yeah we have to stop throwing that around. Mm. So it comes with a history of really Yeah, I suppose what I'm trying to uh, establish in my own head, is, is it your own self-perception or is it how people look on you? Uh, is it right to feel stigmatised? I mean do people look on, down on you? My experience, um, I have experienced feeling less than by myself and I have experienced by the services, by my community, by friends and family, unintentionally um, being judged. You know, mm. for God's sake, get on with your life. You know, your grand look at what you have in your life. And it's, I have a 21-year-old that was born when I was a day patient in the psychiatric ward for eight years. And then I have a, a, an 18-year-old who's rocking. And she was born when I was in Trinity College. And both of them know their mammy done a stint in a psychiatric ward. And both of them know that their mum attempted suicide. They have no, exactly what you're saying, Michael, mm. they're going... 
what's stigma, ma? D- mm. Don't know what it means. We know yeah. what you went through. Well, is stigma evidenced on a, a job application form? You know when you apply for a job and they say, have you ever suffered yeah. uh, from a yeah. mental health illness? Uh, People lie. Yeah, we work, we work in the corporate now. Mm. We've brought oh, big corporate organisations, maybe 800,000 through our corporate programmes, which is fantastic. We're working really big time in the corporate and getting to people who wouldn't normally. And they will say, look, we'll say, look, you have your EAP, Employee Assistance Programme, you can access that. Hang on a minute, where does my records go? What will they say? Will it stop a promotion? And some organisations, um, people won't, and they'll go, you can say all you can, you know, mm. whatever you want to say, but I know it will have an impact on how people treat me and how people see me in the workplace. Mm. Now, we're trying to break that down, which is super. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, if uh, you say you haven't had a, a mental health illness and you have had a, a mental health illness, uh, you've lied on the form that can compromise you as well. And the other side, it, it, it has to be about minding yourself. And the other side, I, I just don't, I don't go into the mental health illness. I have mental health. You have mental health, yeah. Michael. Mm. Every human being has mental health. Now, it will take a dip from time to time because life will come your way. Mm. And it's more about... How will I manage whatever comes my way? Mm. How will I get myself through it? Um, and at times I'll be a bit battered and bruised from it. Um, but what support can I look for? Who's the person beside me that gets me? Will I need a bit of counselling? Will I need to go to my mm. GP? Well, if you get a bit of counselling, you can answer no. You can be the most depressed person in the world and you can answer no and you've uh, filled out the form truthfully. Uh, if you go to your doctor and you get prescribed antidepressants, you must answer yes or you're not being truthful and again for me Michael Mm. around forms and documents and sheets you have to bear in mind I was in a psych ward if I'd have gone to leave the country they wouldn't have let me into certain countries in the world so Mm. I personally it's more about it's not about a form it's about how am I in relation to my mental health how am I building up my resilience Mm. and my day to day maintenance and Mm. then like that with the Eden programme and our other programmes Mm -hmm. is that how can I access these programmes to help me get the quality of life first that I deserve and every human being does um, and that I can actually be part of that change so Mm. it's like we're chatting away now about mental health about suicide this is what's going this is the generational Mm. change we need yeah well I suppose it comes back to perception and uh, that's uh, the point I'm trying to get to Carolina and when you see a question like that asked uh, on a form Everybody wants to answer, no, I've never had a mental health illness because they wonder if the person who's asking them uh, the question is actually asking, are you as mad as a hatter? Uh, And if you say, yes, I'm as mad as a hatter, you're not going to get the job. Uh, Where hopefully if you say, no, you're not as mad as a hatter, you might get the job. Uh, But as you say, uh, we all have mental health. uh, And, you know, the point is, it's not a a question that should be asked. uh, And maybe they should be asking, are you in good mental health at the moment, regardless of whether you took tablets or not? And the other side, I remember when I was building my life back up, I went to, to a particular agency and said, look, I have to put a CV together. And they said, you need to lie about those eight years. So what I've done is I put it up on our website. I thought, no, I'm not lying. Now, I'm not saying everyone should do that, but I was encouraged to cover up and say I'd gone travelling. Tell me about Eden. So the Eden programme is the mothership. It's where it all started. And it is a, it's a really beautiful, tough programme, but it's a beautiful programme where people are invited and get an opportunity over six months, one day a week. Um, there'll be up to 16 people in the group, Michael. Mm. And it will be people who have had thoughts or feelings of death by suicide, who will have attempted suicide or who are seriously considering suicide. So what we would say is, look, come meet with our team, 
consider about making the commitment. We would never say to anyone, don't kill yourself because we don't know what's going on. What we would say to someone is, would you consider coming on Eden and looking at living um, and possibly to the best of your ability, putting the the action of suicide on hold over the six months to see what it might be like to build up your skills, to build up your resilience. Um, it's a very, it's driven by the person. So mm. we're not the experts, they're the experts. We might, we might have some expertise. So it's very educational and um, people will come every week and there's a menu of looking at what's resilience, what's community, what is depression, what is suicide, mindfulness, uh, what, um, how do I manage emotions, relationships. So it gets you to look at exploring, building up, but it also gets you to look at what's my responsibility. So as a person with, you know, serious thoughts of death by suicide, mm. how, how might I slowly, bit by bit, start to turn that around, particularly when I get triggered and when the anxiety is so high, it's like I cannot bear this anxiety or I cannot bear this depression. And it's getting people to look at, you know, you are more than your thought of suicide. You are more than your feeling of suicide. How, how does it work, though? Uh, I mean, if you're feeling that way and then you sit down with another 15 people who feel the same way or perhaps are even more depressed than you, how does that help you? In what way, Michael? Well, I, I mean, I'm not sure that it's a positive influence. I don't mean to be facetious. But oh, no, I'll give you, you the know, feedback, and, and mm, I'm delighted yeah, because mm. I'm delighted the questions you're asking mm. me. They're really valid because that's what people ask. So the, here's the beauty, and these, are, these mm. have been evaluated by DCU, so it's not me going mm. on here. And I, I know you're endorsed by the National Office of yeah, Suicide National Prevention, Prevention and National Counseling Service. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. more important than all of that is the participants. So here's, here's two pieces that over 15 years comes back every time, right? Mm. First is, oh my God, we can say the word suicide here and nobody's go mad. We can actually say, I'm considering suicide and the facilitators will go, yeah, absolutely, that makes sense. And they don't get judged and nobody runs out to get ambulances. Nobody does anything other than to say, right, let's look at how you might support yourself until this passes. The second thing is the feedback again, again and again is the participants learn so much from each other and they say, these are the conversations we desperately want to have. We cannot have around our family who we love. We cannot have around our friends who we love because they're frightened. Is it, is it a, a liberation, do you think, you know, that people uh, can do something that they hadn't been able to do before? Well, people can talk because yeah. it's all in yeah. our heads and hearts anyway. So they mm. get to talk in a safe environment that doesn't judge them, but also says, yeah, actually... Suicide is an option for everybody and it's about let's look at it and consider how we might turn that around. But the bit about you said there, Michael, about it being depressive, mm. it's actually not. It's actually more people going, oh, my God, I'm normal. I'm mm. not on my own. Other people have these thoughts and feelings and I'm being allowed because you have to remember it's an educational program, not a therapeutic, um, which is very different. So what we would say to them is, while you're on the Eden programme, make sure you have other resources. Don't put all your eggs in one basket because it doesn't work. Every bit of research tells us that. So what we would say is, look, um, consider some one-to-one counselling. Uh, get you know Maybe look at your diet and consider a good support person as you go through the programme. Mm. So it's really important that we're one spoke on, the one, on, on their wheel of support. Okay. 
uh, you're talking to about 5% of uh, the people, directly to about 5% of uh, the people uh, uh, listening to us, uh, I think you said uh, at the outset, uh, who may have those feelings at some stage. Uh, you have a website, Caroline, suicide yeah, or survive.ie. Yeah. And I think, Michael, what mm-hmm. me and you are talking, who we're talking to today, is someone's mother, father, brother, sister, uncle, friend. We're, we're talking to our communities. And isn't it just fantastic that we're able to do that? Mm. Okay. Uh, you have a telephone number as well, AC? Yeah, we do. Yeah. Um, and it's 1-890-577-577. And also to say to other people who run other programmes, wellness programmes, if they're of any support or value to the community, it would be only too delighted. Okay, suicide or survive.ie for more information or that number available from the radio station if uh, people didn't have a, a pen to hand. Caroline, thank you indeed for joining thank us this morning. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank Take you very care. much indeed. Caroline McGuigan, Chief Executive Officer of Suicide or Survive or SOS. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Right, now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Caroline Quinn of Castle Bellingham Station joins us for this week's report. And we begin in Dundalk, where there was a burglary, an aggravated burglary, uh, overnight. Uh, yeah, the, the Guardian and Dock are investigating this burglary. Um, it was in the Toborona area and it was shortly before 4am this morning. Um, three masked men entered the victim's house through the back door. Uh, two were armed with knives and one with a sledgehammer and they demanded money and jewellery from the occupant and then they ransacked his house. Um, the victim is a man in his 50s. He was struck with the hammer during the incident. Um, Guardian and Dock are appealing for any witnesses or anyone with information about this incident to contact them. Okay, and we go to Drogheda, where Gardaí are investigating a robbery. This happened last Thursday. Um, yeah, this was at about uh, 3.30pm last Thursday the 6th. There was a lady walking along the cord road in Drogheda and a young woman ran from behind her and she grabbed her by the arm and then grabbed her handbag and fled from the area. Again, anyone who can assist with that, please contact the Gardaí in Drogheda. Okay, we go to Navin and uh, another burglary to report on. Yeah, a house broken into in Boyneview in Johnstown in Navin over the weekend. The occupants of the house were away for the weekend and they came home Sunday night and they found that the house had been ransacked and there was some cash in the house that had been stolen. Um, Guardian Navigate, uh, Navin are investigating that one and anyone with information to contact them. Okay, and we uh, conclude in Trim, not with a crime, or at least I hope not with a crime. It's a uh, Trim Garda station. Uh, you want to uh, let people know that there's a, a, an open day in the station. Yeah, it's nice to have something good yeah. to say for a change. Yeah, this, uh, Superintendent Yvonne Murphy, she's hosting an open day at Trim Garda station and it's on Saturday from 12 till 3. Um, all are welcome. It's going to be a great family event. And um, there, some of the things on will be there's a uh, guard of vehicles. There's displays from the local guard units and the national guard units are going to be there. Uh, tours of the guard station. Uh, the road safety authority will be there, and they have a rollover simulator. There's Mead Civil Defence and the Mead River Rescue, and there's a few other things on as well. Great day, mm. I'd say. On Saturday, is it? On Saturday yeah. from mm. 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. All right. Thank yeah. you indeed.
Garda Hi, Caroline too. Quinn of Castle Bellingham Station. Now, before we finish up today, let's uh, go back uh, to the phones. Marie is back in with us with uh, some more of uh, the comments that have been coming to you, Marie. Michael, I read out a comment earlier mm. from John, yeah. who was making the point in relation to women and the, what they face in work during mm. pregnancy and after they have children and mentioned that his daughter was a public servant and it was her female colleague oh, that yeah. she got the yeah, most grief right, of. Do you remember? And you were wondering. Yeah, yeah. So mm. he rang back oh, in thanks, anyway, yeah, just yeah. to elaborate mm. a little bit further without going into too mm-hmm. much details that might identify her. He just mentioned that she uh, is a public servant and that her job involves long shifts and there's a restroom provided uh, for women who are pregnant but when she needed to kind of use the restroom it was kind of you know her life mm. was made a bit difficult yeah. and he says that after she had the baby um, she was breastfeeding and she would have had to express milk and again mm. uh, her life was made a little bit difficult when she was doing that so mm. and the point he was making was that it was two seniors were females yep yeah. Yeah. So they mm. were the ones that were giving her the grief, if you like. Okay. Yeah. So that was his mm. Possibly his one of the reasons uh, why there's uh, such a uh, low rate of breastfeeding in this country relative to other European countries. Yeah. Uh, mm. On the same topic, Pat from Balbriggan, uh, in relation to gender quotas, just says, it's fine looking, uh, women looking for more important jobs, but if they are not up to doing the job, then they shouldn't just get the job to fit in with quotas. Mm. Jobs should be given on a person's ability and he feels strongly about that that mm. it's the person's ability not I think everybody agrees yes. with that yeah but when you've got a, a situation uh, like uh, the one that has been going on it's cultural uh, mm. and you, to change the culture you need to take uh, dramatic steps such as introduce quotas but I don't think anybody uh, who's arguing for quotas thinks that they should be there permanently mm. and he had a second point to make mm. in relation to teachers who are female mm. he says there's nothing worse a student in a school and come exam year the teacher that you know is excellent gets pregnant mm. and suddenly she's gone yep. and you maybe have an inexperienced teacher in the classroom mm. yep. while the teacher is gone and mm. says that that's an issue for a lot of people too. Yeah, I'm sure it is uh, but uh, you know, you've got to look at that uh, from uh, the woman's point of view and uh, of course we're all entitled to have families. That's right. And just one message mm. Michael, because I'd loads in on the text yep. from people to say, they're not gone away the water protesters, Michael. Ah, they are. They're not. Ah, they no, are. no, they're not. not. No, they have. They have. They, they, they all forgotten. have their marching <laughs> shoes ready so you, should, you shouldn't have yeah. said that. We, yeah, had, yeah. we had lots of texts. Three, three text messages <laughs> and it's as if it's a movement. <laughs> right. Oh, a big movement it is too. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Time will tell. Alright, thanks for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us. That's where our time runs out once again, remember before we go, there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.